This is the Citizen of Heaven podcast number 168, Evil. I am Hal Hammonds, and I am a citizen of heaven, and your embedded correspondent in Satan's world. More on that phrase in a few minutes. There is evil in the world. I remember President George W. Bush getting in a lot of trouble saying that 20 years ago, but he was right then, and he's right now. This week, we will discuss my theory on why the ones who knew God best rejected him the most, how Dr. Jekyll thought he could have his cake and eat it too, why I insist on saying Satan is ruling the world today, and why we avoid one of the most beloved characters in the board gaming world. We'll start with what I've been preaching. I have a theory. See what you think about it. I'm starting to think that idolatry in the Bible, especially idolatry among the people of God, was 100% entirely about sex. Here's my case. When you see the people of Israel going after strange gods, typically it is in the context of prostitution, foreign women, the women that Solomon himself warns the people about so many times in the first part of the book of Proverbs, the foreign women that Solomon himself chased after, and doing so, found himself worshiping false gods. The error of Balaam that we read about in Revelation chapter 2, referring to the actions in Numbers chapter 25, which appear to have been Balaam's idea, bringing in Moabite women and Midianite women into the camp of Israel, the nation that Balaam was not allowed to curse, but wound up cursing itself because they took to themselves foreign wives. I don't think that this connection is accidental. I think this goes back to the very beginning. I think it goes back to Genesis chapter 2. I think it goes back to what Jesus alludes to in Matthew chapter 19, that from the beginning, God made them male and female and said that the husband was to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. The two were going to be one flesh. This is the eternal plan for man and woman in the eyes of God. It's not simply a matter of gratifying sexual urges. It is about showing the power and the love and the providence of God in the lives of his people. By living lives of holiness, by demonstrating a commitment to God in our own lives and in our marriages, we are to build one another up in the faith. We are to procreate and spread the kingdom to our children and to our children's children. This has always been God's plan. Sex in its proper place is God's way of building up his people and emphasizing the holiness of his connection to his spiritual bride. We see that kind of imagery throughout the text. Old and New Testament, like the book of Hosea, deals with this extensively. We know that Jesus is called the bride of Christ in Ephesians chapter 5. And what we see in the people of Israel, especially the people of Israel in the wilderness, is a rejection of that plan. These people, of course, don't know God very well. For centuries, they have been isolated from any kind of prophecy, and here they are introduced in grand fashion. Moses brings plagues upon the nation of Egypt, one after another, spares the people of God. They depart from Egypt. They're delivered, saved from slavery, and they're saved again at the Red Sea. They're saved in the wilderness as poison water turns to fresh water, as food falls from the skies to feed them in the wilderness. Then they come to Mount Sinai, and they find out that the show has only begun. 
They hear from God himself thundering down from the mountaintop until they just can't stand it anymore. This is God presenting himself to his people, calling for them to give themselves to him in a way they have never given themselves to any other God. To be true to him, to be faithful to him, you shall have no other gods before me. I come first, just as you come first with me. And the people chose not to do that. And this is the thing that really brought this concept to the forefront in my mind. I have wrestled for the better part of 56 years now with how in the world this nation that experienced these wilderness wonders could possibly turn on God and turn on him so quickly and so consistently. And I think this is the answer. In the end, God was not offering them what they wanted. Ultimately, this gift of holiness and righteousness and fellowship paled in comparison to what the devil was offering in a sinful, evil world. In Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, leading up to the story of the flood, we read, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. That's an amazing thing to say about an entire race of human beings. He found some faith in Noah and Noah's family. But as a general rule, human beings had chosen the wrong path. They had decided to go their own way instead of God's way. Evil continually. The same contrast is given to us today. The same choice. You can give yourself to holiness and the things of God, or you can give yourself to evil and the things of the devil. Most people are going to make the wrong choice. Israel itself made the wrong choice generation after generation. And we see it in our world today. You have to decide what you want out of life. You have to decide what path you want to take. And do not be surprised when the words of Jesus come true, that the vast majority of your neighbors choose the path that seems to be going in exactly the wrong direction. The choice of death instead of the choice of life. The broad way. It has always been this way. Have the courage to choose life, to choose holiness, to choose sanctification. Make the conscious choice to embrace holiness, as seen in our physical behavior, in our marriages, and in every other aspect of our life. It's not necessarily the popular choice, but it is, from a biblical perspective, the obvious choice. The choice that leads to life instead of destruction. This is what I've been reading. Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde reads very differently in novel or novella form than it did in the comic book renderings that I knew as a youngster. I never actually read the book until this year. Now, I was surprised on multiple levels. Most notably, the book does not focus really on Dr. Jekyll. He's hardly a character in the book at all. He is a friend of the main character. And there's also this strange person that he keeps running into in the streets who he doesn't know, who he comes to realize has some kind of connection with Dr. Jekyll, who's causing all kinds of trouble, who appears to be a murderer and certainly a bad fellow all the way around. And only at the end, when the narrator finds Dr. Jekyll's papers, his written confession, does he realize that Jekyll and Hyde are the same person. 
it's a horrifying kind of thing. And it's been co-opted so many times in so many different ways, so many movie adaptations and knockoff spinoffs, et cetera, that it's difficult for us, or at least it was difficult for me, to look at it from the original perspective, which must have been just horrifying to read. Dr. Trickle and Mr. Hyde has been seen for now almost 150 years as the prototypical story of the war inside of us, between our natures, between the good and the evil that seems to dwell in each one of us. Sometimes one will dominate, sometimes the other will dominate. Certain people seem to be dominated more by the evil, some seem to be dominated more by the good. And because of that, we are in constant conflict. We're in constant doubt and concern and stress. The philosophy of Dr. Jekyll was, we can relieve this stress. We can empower ourselves to be the kind of human beings that we're capable of being if we let each one of these natures have their way. Instead of trying to become a good person fighting against our evil nature, what we can do instead is separate the two personalities. You drink this crazy potion and the good person becomes more good, purely good. And the evil person becomes purely evil. And both of them get to have their way. And this is really a a powerful point that got to me when I was reading the book. It's not about defeating evil. It's about giving place to evil in what would seem to be a safe and non-personal kind of way. The problem is not the evil. The problem is the conflict. And of course, we as Christians look at this from a Bible perspective and see this as a very fancy and sci-fi-ish kind of version of compromise. It's not about finding a satisfactory life. It's not about finding peace with yourself, at least not for its own purposes. It's about the pursuit of God's will for our lives. You may or may not be comfortable with that in the moment, but whether you are or are not, whether it's easy or or less than easy for you to pursue that, that is God's will for your life. It's the will of God for all of us. What we need to do is commit ourselves to purity. And it's not going to be found by allowing our weaker nature, our baser nature, our ugliness to leak out in some kind of contained situation. And maybe that's what Robert Louis Stevenson's point really was, because of course, if you don't know, spoiler alert, Dr. Jekyll's experiment ends in disaster. He is not able to control the situation. The part of him that he assumed was the weaker part, because Mr. Hyde was smaller, gnarled, ugly, whereas Jekyll was a prosperous and handsome kind of fellow. It looked like, or at least Jekyll theorized in his papers, that this was an indication of the greater power of his positive nature, of his noble nature. But in the end, Hyde leaks through. The evil presents itself whether Dr. Jekyll wanted him to or not, whether he called for him or not, indicating that maybe this ugliness, this seeming lack of power, was very much deceptive. In Romans 13 and verse 14, Paul writes, But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. I come back to that phrase time and time again when Satan pulls at me. Make no provision. Do not set wheels in motion 
to empower you to sin. As obvious as that may seem to be, we do exactly the opposite so many times. Whether it's the subscription services that we subscribe to in an entertainment area, whether it's the friends that we keep, whatever it happens to be, we allow ourselves to be in situations where we're going to be tempted to sin. And oftentimes we're going to give in to the temptation. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27, and do not give the devil an opportunity. That's the crux of it right there. That goes all the way back to Cain and Abel, Genesis 4, verse 7, where God told Cain that he has to rule over this sin. He has to rule over the angriness, the ugliness that's on the other side of the door, the door that God put there, the door that can remain closed. But if you take a peek, you want to see what sin looks like on the other side. You want to experience it in some detached kind of way, some safe kind of way. Sin will find its way in and sin will eat you alive. We need to do exactly the opposite. We need to be building up walls to keep sin out. I think that's the point of Jesus' analogy in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 22 and 23. The eye is the lamp of the body, so then if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? He has called us to holiness. He has called us to truth, to sanctification. And when we deliberately put barriers in our path to keep that from happening, then we're not focused on light anymore. If we're not even trying to live our life in the light, how is it possible that we could somehow manage to stumble into the light? We need to do exactly the opposite. Do not become overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. Romans 12, verse 21. That's not an easy fight by any means. And it may seem like the evil is on the winning side on a lot of days. But you can win this battle. Not because you're so strong or because evil is so weak, but because Jesus is Lord. You are submitting to his power and his authority. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. This is what I've been hearing. I've been criticized somewhat over the last three and a half years. Maybe criticized is a bit strong of a word. Questioned might be a better word. With regard to the way I refer to Satan's world in the introduction of my podcast every week. And I get that. I have not always put it in those terms before. And I can see if someone is unused to those terms it might sound like God is somehow not ruling in the world. If Satan is ruling, then God must not be. That doesn't necessarily follow. There can be two rulers in a place. I'm in Texas. Greg Abbott is the governor. He is ruling. But Joe Biden is the president of the United States. He's ruling too. One does not cancel out the other. One is seen in the context of the other. And I hope that we would all agree that God ultimately is sovereign over all things. That's what we see in Psalm twenty-two, twenty-eight: for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. But while we're here in the flesh, living among fleshly people, the devil is in charge. If you don't want to take my word, take Jesus' word, or rather Jesus' words. And if you're not listening to this with your Bible out, I would encourage you to get a Bible at some point and maybe a pencil and, and take some notes if you are slow coming around to the idea of the devil ruling in this world, because Jesus is quite consistent with this, especially in the book of John. John chapter 12 
In verse 31, we read, Now judgment is upon this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. And he's talking here, Jesus speaking, of course, about his coming death and how this is going to appear anyway to be a victory for the devil, but it's anything but that. This is going to be a denunciation of the devil, a demonstration of the power of God, of the triumphant sovereignty of Jesus Christ. The ruler of this world will be cast out. He's not specific about who that ruler is, but it's pretty obvious in the context. That's talking about the devil. He's not talking about Herod. He's not talking about Caesar. He's talking about the power behind the throne, as it were. And he's saying the time has not yet come for that complete victory, which is already accomplished in the mind of God, to be visible, demonstrable in the lives of his people or his people's enemies. That day is coming, though. It began with the resurrection. As Jesus demonstrated power over death itself, and death is the ultimate power that is wielded by forces of evil. Jesus conquered that, and he empowers us to conquer it as well. We haven't seen that yet, but we believe it. We live in hope. We are confident that the ruler of this world is not going to defeat us. He's already been defeated, as far as we're concerned. Later on in John chapter 14, verse number 31, Jesus speaking to his disciples privately, he says, I will not speak much more with you, for the ruler of this world is coming, and he has nothing in me. That's the power of Jesus that we're talking about, the power shown in his holiness, in his conquest over temptation, over sin. We saw it in the temptations, as three times the devil tried to get him to come over to the dark side. And three times Jesus said, it is written, He chose the ways of his father, even if it did not serve his short-term interests, even if it did give him what we as carnal beings might think would be the ultimate reward. Jesus has higher aspirations than that. Jesus is able to withstand the devil. He has nothing in me, he says. Comes up again in chapter 16, later on in the same conversation, in verse number 11, and concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. There are already victors and losers. And if you're on the side of Jesus, you're victorious in this. The devil is winning an awful lot of battles in the short term, but ultimately he will be defeated. We have already seen the last page of the book, literally and figuratively. We know how this is going to turn out. We see this as part of Paul's gospel in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, starting in verse number 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. How does the devil have the power to blind the eyes of people? Well, obviously, it is under the auspices of the sovereignty of the Heavenly Father. We're not calling that into question at all. We're not suggesting that certain people, because of the power of Satan, have no chance to be saved. We're saying that The God of this world has blinded those who have chosen to serve him. Those ones who have chosen death instead of life, however deliberately they did it. They find themselves blind to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They can find the light. John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21 talk about that. How darkness is banished by light and darkness hates that light. But we have been able to come out of the darkness into the light ourselves. And we urge other people to do so as well. Satan is ruling over them. What we need to do is make sure that we keep the darkness on the outside. That we banish darkness in our own lives, in our own hearts, and as much as we can in the lives of others as well. So yes, you are living in Satan's world right now. 
I'm not asking you to be happy about it. I hope you're not happy about it. Because there is an alternative coming, by the way. There is another world that we're going to be inhabiting in not too much longer. Our citizenship is in heaven, as the title of this podcast indicates. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20. In the meantime, though, while you are living in Satan's world, while you're living among Satan's people, be a difference maker. You never know what kind of impact. You never know what kind of an impact you might have on the darkness. This is what I've been playing. Usually in this space, I give a few words about a particular game that we have been playing that we may like, we may not like for whatever reason, and then make some spiritual application. We're going to deviate from that plan. And instead of talking about an individual game, I want to talk about a character that appears in many games, a character called Cthulhu. Cthulhu is a creation of H.P. Lovecraft. Back almost 100 years ago now, Cthulhu and the work of Lovecraft is no longer protected by copyright. And so all of a sudden there's Cthulhu popping up everywhere, and especially in the gaming world. Cthulhu appears in games like Elder Gods, Arkham Horror, Eldritch Horror. There's a pandemic that is Cthulhu-themed. Cthulhu is essentially a demon, a force of evil, a presence of a godly nature almost that overwhelms and infects and destroys. And most of these games are about somehow escaping from Cthulhu, uh, escaping from the influences, getting away from his minions, etc. At least as best I can tell, that's what it is. I say at least as best I can tell because we don't play Cthulhu games. And what follows here is a personal judgment, nothing more than that. Tracy and I and our family, we decided early on that we were not going to participate in games that celebrated evil or that encouraged evil. And one of the first calls that we made was we are not going to buy Cthulhu games. We're not going to play Cthulhu games. Again, as I said before, if you want to make a different call, that's your business. But we thought it was a small price to pay to avoid things that were trying, it seems, to live in the realm of evil. This is usually when preachers will refer to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 22, where Paul writes that we are to abstain from every form of evil or every appearance of evil, I think the old King James Version had. And the point that is oftentimes made, especially if someone's reading from the King James, is that if it looks like it might be evil, you need to stay away. Steer clear of everything that appears to be perhaps maybe sinful, which may be good advice. That's not the point that Paul is trying to make here. The point that Paul is making is that evil appears in various forms. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes sin looks like Cthulhu, for instance. If you don't know what Cthulhu looks like, do some research. It's a pretty grotesque kind of thing. I won't try to describe it in audio form. But if something is identifiably evil, we need to stay away from that. And yes, it will mean that we make sacrifices from time to time. Like Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 33, do not be deceived. Evil companionships corrupt good morals. By spending time in evil places, you pick up evil acquaintances who have evil influences on your life. Does it necessarily lead to destruction? No, perhaps not. But it does tend to be that way. And it certainly tends much more to be that way when we deliberately court the things that are evil as opposed to avoiding the things that are evil, embracing goodness, embracing righteousness. I encourage you in your walk with Christ 
to spend less time fretting about how much of an evil influence is safe to expose yourself to, and more instead courting noble, righteous, holy relationships with pastimes, with people, with the Bible, certainly. I think that's what Paul means in Galatians 6.6. 6. The one who has taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. The entire book of Galatians is about Paul's frustration at these disciples of his, people that he brought to the Lord, choosing the teaching of other people instead of choosing Paul's teaching. They're having fellowship with these others, these false teachers. Choose your companions more carefully than that. Have fellowship, have sharing with those who are comrades with you in the walk of faith, in truth, in holiness. Earlier in the book, chapter 6 and verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. And he goes on to talk about this conflict between flesh and spirit. The more you give yourself to fleshly desires, the more you give yourself to fleshly impulses, the more inclined you're going to be to make poor choices, to make carnal choices. Living lives of the Spirit is exactly the opposite of that. The more you give yourself to God, the more you give yourself to the things of God, to the people of God, to the Word of God, the more prepared you're going to be to be a light in a dark world. You've probably heard the old saying, it's not the water outside the boat that sinks the boat, it's the water that's inside the boat. And that's the way it is for us as we are sailing through shark-infested waters, devil-infested waters. There is lots and lots of evil out there in the world. But that need not concern you, and it certainly need not defeat you, because you are in the boat with Jesus. And as we've said already, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. You are in Jesus, and you have millions or billions of souls out there in the world who are in the devil. This is not a numbers game. This is faith in action. Make sure yours is strong enough to sustain you, because I offer you no assurance whatsoever that the world's going to get less evil. If that is your plan to survive, you need to wake up. The world has always been evil, and it will continue to be so as long as Jesus tarries, I'm confident. The solution is not fixing the world. The solution is building up your faith, building up your connection to spiritual things and your aversion to unholy things. Reject evil. Embrace Jesus. You've been listening to the Citizen of Heaven podcast. Thank you for your support. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe through your favorite podcast platform and or on YouTube. Comments, corrections, and suggestions are always welcome. Please feel free to follow me through Facebook, MeWe, Parlor, or Instagram, or check out my webpage, www.howhammonds.com. Until next time, be strong and courageous, fight the good fight of faith, and do all things in the name of the Lord Jesus. This is Hal Hammonds, the Citizen of Heaven, signing off.